Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the brilliant sunshine. We thank you for a place that is air-conditioned, uh, where we can hear from you. We can hear from your word. We can sit at your feet, as Mary did, and learn from your teaching. Lord, we thank you that your word is timeless. It is not bound by culture or time frame or type of person. It's universal and has been for every person, no matter what time period they've lived in. We thank you that you call many, many different kinds of people to faith in you to make up your one family. We thank you that your word reveals to us your plan of salvation and what faith really is. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this current movement where one labels him or herself spiritual but not religious. Anybody hear this phrase before? Spiritual but not religious. It's usually in, in connection to someone not wanting to have anything to do with church, not wanting to have anything to do with a biblical faith, not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus. Actress Angelina Jolie is quoted as saying, I don't know if there's a name for that, religion or faith, just that there's something greater than all of us, and it's uniting and beautiful. She's also quoted as saying, there doesn't need to be a God for me. There's something in people that's spiritual, that's God-like. I don't feel like doing, any, doing things just because people say things, but I also don't really know if it's better to just not believe in anything either. That, you can pretty much sum up the spiritual but not religious movement in that. Actor Russell Brand claims to be spiritual but not subscribing to a particular religion. Instead, he's quoted as saying that he believes in an infinite creative force, whatever that is. Singer Katy Perry is quoted as saying, I don't believe in a heaven or hell or an old man sitting on a throne. I believe in a higher power bigger than me because that keeps me accountable. I don't know how, but apparently that keeps her accountable. <laughs> I don't know how well that's doing either. <laughs> George Clooney is quoted as saying, whatever anybody believes, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's fair enough and I think is real and matters. It's not just limited to outspoken celebrities, however. In fact, according to a poll taken about a year and a half ago, one in five Americans now takes this label of spiritual but not religious. According to another study, one-third of American adults who are under age 30 now consider themselves unaffiliated with any religion but spiritual in some way. Faith has been redefined out of anything structure. This world has redefined what faith means, what faith is. It can be used to just have some sort of belief in anything. Just because someone claims to have faith doesn't mean they believe in God. It used to be that if somebody said they were a person of faith, that they were most likely a person who believed in God at least, right? But that's not the way that it is anymore. Someone who claims to have faith does not mean that they believe in God and certainly does not mean that their belief in God has anything to do with what the Bible reveals to us. In this world of anything goes when it comes to faith, especially with those now in their 20s increasingly taking this worldview, where does the believer in Jesus stand? 
how do we interact with this world and have conversations about faith with people when faith has been completely redefined? So much so that the world is, the word is kind of useless now because it's been redefined so much. Where, where we must start, along with any other topic, is with God's understanding of faith as revealed to us in his word. That must be our foundation, which then strengthens our faith, which we can then use in our conversations with others. So, what is faith? That's the big question today. Is having faith in God merely closing your eyes as tight as you can and saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, until you feel like it's true? Is that what faith in God is? Is trusting God simply a blind faith? A lot of Christians are walking around believing this non-biblical belief that they believe in God and that they could stop believing in God if they wanted to, and they're walking this thin line of, well, I hope I don't lose my faith in God. Likewise, a lot of Christians are, are walking around thinking that if they just believe hard enough, God will heal them or give them what they want. If things don't work out the way they wanted, they then believe that they didn't have enough faith. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we thought that? I didn't have enough faith. Our exploration of what the Bible teaches about faith today will hopefully dispel those lies of what faith is and unlock for us what faith, even what faith in God really is. We talked about this topic a couple of years ago, and because of our recent messages on prayer, I wanted to revisit this topic again today. So do me a favor, and let's set aside preconceptions of what faith is and see what the Bible actually says about what faith in God is. So the first point, let's just get down to it. What it is, what is faith? This is what it is. To begin with, and we'll see where the Bible says this, any so-called faith that is labeled as what I think, what I feel, or what I believe, or what I can do, or how hard I can believe in something, or how many positive thoughts I can send into the universe, or how many times I can spin the prayer wheel, or how many times I go to confession, or how many sayings I can say, or how many acts of penance I can do, is not actual faith. Any of those is not actual faith. Why? Because it's all based on self. It's all based on self. It's all based on how good you are, or rather how good you think you are. It's all based on what you can do. And if something is based on a self-focus, no matter what you call it, it's not faith. It's not faith because it's the very definition of weakness. It's the very definition of weakness. Anything that you come up with, no matter how inclusive it is, is still something that you came up with. When it really comes down to it, it doesn't matter how nice it sounds. Is that something you really, stop and think about it, is that something you really want to entrust with the big questions of what happens when you die, what happens when you suffer, and what is life all about? Do you really want to entrust that very weak line of thinking, all those big questions to that? I don't think so. So what does the Bible teach us about faith? 
Firstly, we have to look at the word translated for faith in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we read, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faith. What is the word that's translated as faith there? In order to understand this, we need to look at the word that's translated for us here in our passage this morning as faithfulness or faith. And at the same time, look at the context of it as laid out in this list of the fruits of the Spirit. The Greek word for faith or faithfulness is the word pistis. We'll get to that word in a minute. But I first want to look at the root word for pistis, and that is pytho. The, the root word of pistis is pytho. Pytho means to persuade into having confidence. To persuade into having confidence. In a negative light, con men win your trust by being very persuasive, right? That's the negative side of it. In fact, in Greek pagan religion, which some of Paul's Galatian believers that he's writing to here, no doubt came from in background and all had some knowledge of culturally and linguistically, there was a Greek goddess named Pytho. Pytho was the goddess of persuasion. And she hung out with the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Rich women, Ill eligible for marriage, would invite lots of male suitors to marry her, to, to, to come call on her to see if she would want to marry them. So if you were one of those male suitors, you would pray to Pytho to persuade that woman to marry you. <laughs> I suppose if there were multiple men trying to get Pytho to persuade the woman on their behalf, you'd first have to persuade Pytho why she should persuade that woman that you were the best one. It could get kind of confusing, I'm sure. And if you had to pray for Pytho, pray, pray to Pytho for her to persuade the woman you wanted to marry, you probably weren't that great of a catch to begin with. This word Pytho, the root word for pistis, is quite telling when it comes to faith. Why? Because just as it is linguistically, pistis is completely reliant upon Pytho. The word pistis is completely reliant upon pytho, and therefore faith is completely reliant upon persuasion. Faith is completely reliant upon persuasion. That's huge. You cannot have one without the other, and you cannot sever true faith from persuasion. Faith is not something that comes out of nowhere or from a vacuum. It's not something you casually identify yourself with, but will drop it when something better comes along. One cannot accidentally fall into faith. One cannot stumble upon faith through human discovery. Faith is directly connected to persuasion. Persuasion from whom to who? You to yourself? Convincing yourself that something is true? No. Or what would that faith logically be in then? Yourself. Faith in God cannot be you convincing yourself that he is true or else it's not logically faith. In order to be faith, the one being trusted needs to be the one doing the persuading. What does this tell us about faith? True biblical faith. 
that faith in the so-called universe is illogical because the universe does not care or seek to persuade you to have faith in it. It's just there. It doesn't care whether or not you have any faith in any of its perceived power. So therefore, it's not actual faith, no matter what kind of spin you put on it, whether it's traditional Buddhism or some New Age conglomerate. Any other so-called gods are just there, in quotation marks. They don't care if you believe in them or not. What does that tell us about faith in the one true God then? That faith in him is not us convincing ourselves of his existence or his trustworthiness. If you haven't been paying attention this whole time and you don't take anything else away from this message, this is what I want you to take away today. Faith is God persuading us of his trustworthiness. That's what faith is. Faith is God persuading us of his trustworthiness. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But this directly connects to what faith really is. The word for faith, pistis, means confidence. That's what it means. It's derived from pytho, but it means confidence. Its origin is God's persuasion that leads to our confidence in him and his will. Because of this, the word pistis is often used for another meaning in, in, in uh, ancient secular writings. In ancient secular writings, pistis was very often used to describe a guarantee or a warranty. Same word. Think about it. If you're looking at the same exact product from two different vendors, they're the same exact price from two different vendors. What's going to convince you to buy that product from one vendor as opposed to the other? Is what guarantee or warranty one of them is offering compared to the other one right? That's probably what's going to set you over the top to buy that product from that vendor. Why? Because you have the confidence that they're backing up what they're selling and that they're backing up what they're selling as a quality product. The better the guarantee, in general, means the better the quality of product you're getting. In the same way, faith in God is him persuading you to trust him because he's confident in the quality of what he's offering to you. There's no stronger act of persuasion or leading to confidence, is there? God's love for you is what he's selling, so to speak. Now, have you ever heard of a vendor willing to die to convince you of the quality of their product. Should we put a challenge out there? <laughs> Have you ever heard of a, a vendor willing to die for the quality of their product? No, never. Yet that's exactly what God did for each of us in order to persuade us of the perfection of his goodness. So faith in God, in essence, is God's guarantee of his goodness that he persuades us to have confidence in. Do you see where the focus is automatically placed now? It's placed fully on God's shoulders now, isn't it? Faith in God really has nothing to do with us, nor anything we can conjure up, or how much or how little we think we have, or how much we can convince ourselves about him. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit grows it 
in us. That's what leads us to our second point. Talk about what it is, what faith is. Now we're going to talk about the source. Not only is the meaning of faith wrapped up in its linguistic definition, we have biblical evidence for its sole source. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Nothing to do with you. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. You can't do enough good things to get it. Why? So that nobody can boast about the faith that they have. It all comes from God. It's a gift from God. This is where I told you towards the beginning, I'd show where in the Bible it says that faith is not based on ourselves, but it comes from someone else. God persuading us of his goodness is his gift to us. He doesn't need to do it, but yet he chose to anyway because he loves us too much. He knew that humans were always going to falter. Do you think that God is this giant bully who says, it's your job to believe in me, and if you don't, it stinks to be you? Do you think God is a big bully that says that? No, not at all. He knew we weren't able to believe in him of our own accord. So he set about doing the persuading himself. He loves us so much that he pursues us in order to persuade us of his goodness anew. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? We've all had that teacher in school who would lay down the ground rules on the first day of school and say, your homework, your papers, your projects are your responsibility. I'm not going to chase you down for them or remind you when they're due. They're your responsibility. We've all had a teacher like that, right? But God understands our weakness and that we're always going to let him down and yet still persuades us. He still gives us the gift of being confident in his will. We live in a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap society. If you don't, you're considered by the world to be a failure. But God has never set those unrealistic expectations on faith, unrealistic stipulations on faith. He's never said, just have more faith and get over it. He's never said that. Actually, and quite oppositely, he's said, for through the grace given to me, this is Paul writing, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. This is what we read for our scripture reading. But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God is the one that gives it. This is where it starts. None of us becomes a Christian, becomes a believer in Jesus on our own. None of us. God gives us that faith as his grace towards us. God gives to each of his children a portion of faith or enough persuasion to be convinced of his promises, but that portion does not stay at its original level. That's also why it's a fruit of the Spirit. It grows over time with each new experience and each new period of being stretched and forced out of our comfort zones. As we go through more time and more strengthening experiences, that confidence in God's promises grows, thus increasing our faithfulness to God. Abraham, that great hero of the Old Testament, Abraham started out thoroughly pagan. He had no knowledge and no interest in Yahweh. 
He did not worship the one true God when that God called him to leave his father's household and his homeland and go to a land he didn't even know where, where, where God was taking him. But yet, fast forward a few years and we see an unwavering faith in that same God when Abraham was right about to sacrifice the son he waited a hundred years for. Abraham didn't just snap his fingers and all of a sudden have that tremendous amount of faith, did he? He didn't go from thoroughly pagan to boom, being willing to sacrifice his own son. Over the years, God gave him that initial gift of faith. Then as God led him through different experiences and taught him about God and divinely persuaded to trust him, that trust expanded over the years so that by the time God told him to sacrifice Isaac, we learn from scripture that Abraham knew he could trust God enough from over the years of God proving himself trustworthy that even if he followed through with plunging the knife into his son, God would even go so far as to raise Isaac from the dead. That is how unwavering Abraham's faith in his God. God was. But that's not impossibly high. That's what God does with all of us. Abraham was no better than any of us. That's what God is growing in each and every one of us. This isn't always the case, but if a child is adopted by parents, that child can still be trusting of their new parents. But that trust grows more and more over time as they spend more time with their parents, and their parents prove their love for that child over the years. What little trust that child may have started out with in that relationship, over time grows to an unwavering trust in those parents. But see, in that case, and as an illustration of faith, it wasn't the adopted child's job to increase their trust in their parents, was it? It's not the child's job to increase their trust in their parents. Whose job is it? It's the parent's job. Nor would it be fair for someone to tell that child that they need to conjure up more trust in those parents, would it? That would not be fair at all. Whose job it is to increase and grow that child's trust in their parents is the parent's job. <clears throat> in the same way, telling someone to just have more faith, just have more faith, or even trying to believe that for ourselves is just as unfair and just as illogical as telling that adopted child that, that same phrase in connection with his or her parents and not the way that God created faith to be. God has always known it's his job to persuade us to trust him more. Again, he doesn't have to, but he loves us too much to not do that. And so he does. So we have what faith is, we have the source, and what that means for us. When you're laying on your bed in the middle of the night, and as King David once penned, your sheets are soaked with your tears, and you cry out, why can't I have more faith? You don't need to just try to believe more or just try to have more faith. You don't need to do any of that. In fact, it has nothing to do with anything you can or can't do. That's the completely opposite and wrong way of seeing it. That's incredibly freeing, isn't it? It has nothing to do with anything you can or can't do. When the disciples cried out to Jesus those famous words, 
increase our faith. When Jesus, what was Jesus' response? The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What did Jesus mean by this? He didn't mean that if you just believe hard enough, you'll be able to do whatever you want. What he meant is that the level of your faith is completely dependent on God. He gives you the portion to begin with, but then grows that faith over time and walking with you. Being persuaded by God in the truth of his promises gives us the confidence that whatever he leads us to do, he will do through you. It's being so near to God and aware of what he's doing that your confidence in him is unwavering even if he leads you to do something unexplainable. That goes hand in hand with what we've been discussing regarding prayer recently. As the Holy Spirit reveals more and more of God's will to us through our daily surrender to him, our prayers are brought more and more in line with God's will. And we see those prayers answered in miraculous ways. The faith that God grows in us directly affects those prayers, and we see God's power go forth because they're being brought into line with God's will. We've all had someone in our lives that we've trusted so much, especially when we were younger, that if they said, I want you to do this, even if it didn't make any sense at the time, we had the full confidence that things would work out, right? The Bible speaks of having childlike faith in God. That doesn't mean we blindly believe in something. It means we have so much confidence and trust in God, like a child would, would look up to, that we know everything will work out for good. We know that God will work everything out for good, just as his word explains to us. When we cry out to God, give me more faith in this situation, he may often bring back memories of times in the past when he provided or gave comfort or worked something out better than you imagined at the time. That's one of his ways of saying, have I ever let you down? That's now what brings us to the passage this message is based on today. We had to build up all this foundation so we could fully understand what the author of Hebrews says about faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, we all know this verse, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But if you go back into, into the Greek language and you look at each of these words in the Greek language and what other synonyms could be substituted for these words because they mean the same exact thing. This verse takes on a, a, a bit, it's a more compelling statement here. Let's substitute a few words. This is what the author of Hebrews is really getting at here. Now faith is the assurance of things expected. The evidence of things not seen. Well, that takes on a whole new light now, doesn't it? That's what the author of Hebrews was really driving at. In other words, combined with everything else we've seen in Scripture, all that we've been building up to this point, faith is the persuasion by God to us of things that we should expect to happen according to his will, things we may not even see or understand. Foundationally, faith is God's persuasion to us to expect him to come through with his promises. 
It's him persuading us to know our souls are already saved to spend eternity with him. It's him persuading us to know that he will provide for our needs, comfort us, and grow us in dark and difficult times, give us relief when we need it, bring about healing when it gives him the most glory in showing us and others his presence, and giving us power and strength when we need it. As he convinces us by his actions over and over and over time, the fruit of faithfulness that is our unwavering confidence in him will grow. And the more our faithfulness towards God himself grows, the more faithfulness towards the things he has called us to will grow. That includes our marriages, our families, our ministries, and the ways God calls us to serve him outside of our comfort zones. We will seek to be used more and more by him and desire to remain faithful to those promptings. So seeing from scripture, that's what faith really is. There's no more confusion. That's what faith really is. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with us convincing ourselves of something to be true. It has everything to do with God giving us our initial measure of faith and then convincing and persuading us over time of his trustworthiness and proving himself and bringing us to places of being able to trust him with bigger and bigger things. This isn't because we can convince ourselves, but because God has proven it to us. So let us be a people who is persuaded and convinced of the perfection and goodness of God's promises. I think we can do that. Let us hold fast to our confidence in Him. Let that confidence in God flow into how we serve Him and our faithfulness to serving Him as we seek to show this world what faith really is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these truths in Your Word. We thank you that it's not up to us. Thank you that we don't have to convince ourselves of you and your promises. We thank you that you are the one doing all of it, that it's your job and it's all on your shoulders. We thank you that you are doing it. We thank you that you promise it to us and that you're giving it to us on a daily basis. So Lord, I pray as we come before the Lord's table in a minute, that that would flow into our, our remembrance, our memorial, uh, to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.